but we're starting a new series um, titled When in Doubt. Uh, um, and through uh, different Bible characters, we'll be uh, able to see stories of, you know, unfold and the applications to our life. And today we're going to be Mark 9. Mark 9, and we're not taking an exegetical approach to the text. I simply want us to highlight the story of hope, um, but it's also a story of desperation, uh, hope, desperation, and its intersection with doubt. Now, it's a longer passage, um, so what I'll do to make sure you guys don't fall asleep is I'm going to invite you to read with me, um, but, and, but since this story um, is really done in two parts, what I'll do is uh, we'll read the first part, and then we'll get a, a slight moment to reflect on what we've just read. Is that all right? Okay, so can we please rise as we read this text together? It's Mark chapter 9, and if you'd rather to look in your own uh, devices, since only a few people that actually walk with an actual Bible with leaves to turn. Um, but we'll, oh, I'm using the New Kingdom's version, for those of you who want to read that way. Um, it's still the Word of God. And so, verses 2 to 13 is going to be the first part of the story. Can we read together? Here we go. Now, after six days... Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and led them up on my mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no longer an earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then, then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a light came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, hear him. Looked around, they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with himself. Now as they came down from the to the Son of Man had risen from the dead, so they kept themselves questioning what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do you describe, saying that Elijah must come first? And he answered and told them, Indeed, and how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you, okay. Or let's pause for a moment. Now, I know when we're reading, it, we don't always get a chance to grasp what we're reading because it's, you know, so full. Uh, but I want you to consider what is taking place there on this mountain. And I want you just to consider being with Jesus on this mountain. You're seeing the radiance of his beauty. He is revealing his divinity as God is speaking from heaven. What's going on through your mind? I want you to just consider it for a moment. What's going on in your mind if you're there and you're witnessing this? Or how would that moment 
validate your faith. Think about that for a moment. Think about if you're there witnessing this. How does that validate your faith? But I also want to consider, if you had one question to ask, seeing all of this, what's the most important question you want to ask? You know, you've already seen Jesus being around for a few moments, and now you get a chance to see him in all his glory. What question is on your mind? Just think about it for a moment. Because this is this mountaintop experience. So that's the first part of the story. Now let's read the next part of the story. And let's start again from verse 14. Verse 14. And when he came to this, he saw a great multitude of disputing. Immediately when they saw him, all people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him, and he asked the scratch, What are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes virgin. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out. But they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately his spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long shall this thing And he said, From childhood. And then <coughs> but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus saw that the people came running to to rebuke the unclean spirit, saying to him, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him, enter him no more. And the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, Jesus and he arose. And when he Why could he not cast it out? So he said to them, This kind Lord, we're just thankful for your word. And I pray, God, as we go further into what you have to say to us, that it will take root. I just love you. Give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for reading along. So we see two stories with contradictory experiences. Uh, the first story begins in verses uh, 2 through 13 with a literal mountaintop experience. Jesus and three of his disciples are on a mountain where Jesus is transfigured and God speaks from heaven. Now, this is an incredible scene um, that displays God's divinity and his sovereignty. But in verse 14, the scene changes. After Jesus demonstrates his glory, he moves down to the valley from the mountaintop. 
See, in the valley, we're reminded of how fragile our faith can be. And as Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they make their way down to the rest of the disciples, they face the realities of life in a fallen world. I mean, to live in a fallen world means that we struggle with sin daily. We experience sorrow and pain, and we witness natural disasters, injustice, inhumanity, and there are arguments and disunity. But none of these things are part of God's plan for humanity. But sin makes these things inescapable. But not only do we struggle to live in this fallen world, there's also the imperfect faith of those who are followers of Jesus. We all carry portions of this imperfect faith. Will you agree? See, we talk about faith is the substance of things hoped for what? Evidence of things not seen, which means that faith involves this idea of the unknown. So faith means we should be okay with the unknown, but the unknown creates this tension with our desire to always be in the know, FOMO, fear of missing out. You guys have that? Oh, some of you guys say yes right away. <laughs> but in the valley, there's a desperate father with a demon-possessed son. Uh, these two stories actually paint a picture of our lives. See, sometimes we feel like we're on top of the world and everything's going right. Life is good, and our highs are really high. Got a great job, great Christian community, a nice place to live, living in Berkeley, no AC. Maybe you got a good grade in an exam that you thought you were going to fail. I always like asking people in dead week, what's happening? How you doing? I think uh, somewhere there. But other times we find ourselves in the valley. The really, really low moments of our lives. And things are desperate and discouraging. And at times we can deal with desperation. See, if you're desperate for something, you can always bounce back. But then when it's desperate and discouraging, it's another thing, right? This is not what you expected when you moved to Berkeley. You thought having a roommate was going to be a great idea. How soon we forget. <laughs> Most of our lives happen between the extreme highs and the lows. We could also argue that because we live in this fallen world, it's easier to find ourselves living somewhere closer to the valley. See, going from mountaintop to mountaintop without ever experiencing the valley is really unrealistic. And so as Christians, we mask this imperfection of our faith. So we say things like, whether on the mountaintop or the valley, Jesus is there. It's true. But what's also true is that Christians are not exempt from navigating feelings of doubt. See, we have to learn how to trust God um, in every area of our lives. We desire to trust God, 
but some days are easier than others. Will you agree? You know, you say yes, because I'll swing with someone early and say, Pastor Garfield, do you like, you know, when people are quiet or do you like people loud? I'm like, I want loud, give me loud. So I'm just testing to see if the theory is true. See, if we're honest, many of you that's listening to my voice are currently struggling with doubt. And if these doubts in our lives are left unaddressed, they tend to lead to anxiety or even depression. But Jesus offers a better way. But before I get into the better way, let's look at the mountaintop experience. This is where we want to live. The rosiest places of life. Mark 9 and 2 says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So Peter, James, and John, it's Christ's inner circle. Now, it's not that Jesus has favorites, but it's like many of us, we uh, have some exclusive things that we only do with a few people. You know, it's the ones that you wait to hang out with at the service, your exclusive group. You don't have favorites, just exclusive, right? And it doesn't matter the context. There are some people who you naturally feel closer to than others. Jesus felt closer to these three. Now, the six days in the verse are tied to a story that I didn't read. It's a story found in Matthew 16, and we've done this before, when Jesus had taken his 12 disciples and he walked 30 miles away. Remember that, that sermon? Took these 12 guys and walked 30 miles away to ask them one question. Who do men say that I am? See, this is the story where Peter makes the profession of faith that you are Christ, what? Son of the living God. You, get it. you can talk back, it's fine. It's not a quiz, but you can talk back. So they were in Caesarea Philippi, and then six days after that experience, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, went to this mountain, and the others are waiting at the base. This had to be a surreal moment because in verse 2, it says, Christ was transfigured before them. In Matthew 16, 17, when Christ responded, he said, flesh and blood did not reveal this, but my Father in heaven, my Father in heaven revealed this identity. But here they are six days later witnessing this transformation of Jesus. He gives his inner circle a glimpse of his glory, a glimpse of what flesh and blood could not and did not reveal. And here's how it's described to us in Mark 9 and verse 3. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Not even Clorox bleach. <laughs> in Jamaica, we used to uh, wash with our hands. I know you guys did hear, but that's all we had, no washing machine. Every Saturday, we get up and we had what was called a cake soap because the soap looks like a cake. And it's blue, and we just rub it on the white clothes, and we have the hand brush, and we're scrubbing the white stuff out of it until, you know, the neck is gone because you brushed it so much. I went back in, over the summer and saw that the guys got wise, and they ha actually have some uh, plastic over the neck to prevent it from getting too dirty. But our text says, 
that even that cake soap that we used in Jamaica couldn't make that radiance any wider. See, Mark struggles to find words to describe this transformation. And so the Hebrew word that describes what they witnessed is called Shekinah, Shekinah glory, the presence or glory of God. Peter, James, and John are amazed by this. And if that wasn't enough, look who shows up. The prophets Elijah and Moses. Now, Elijah had been dead for more than 900 years. Moses had been dead for 1,400 years. And yet Jesus is having a dialogue with these men who had died centuries. Just think about that. I mean, if God is going to send two guys from old, why Elijah and Moses? See, everything's intentional. Elijah represents the prophets, and Moses represents the law. What did Christ did? Christ came to fulfill the prophets and the law. But how did they recognize that it was Elijah and Moses? There's one of two reasons. It's either that God revealed it to them, or this is another biblical proof that when we die and go to heaven, we'll still bear our physical likeness in our glorified body. So if they bear their physical likeness after death, then these disciples could recognize them. See, we also saw when Christ came back from the dead, they saw him. Thomas touched him. They didn't say, what ghost is this? They saw Jesus. And we see all throughout Scripture that we'll have these, this glorified body. Now, we won't be thinking the same way. So when you get there, my wife won't be asking me about oxtails and curry goat. It's not going to happen. There's no boba to worry about. You know, what's going to be in our minds is just us being able to worship the king of kings. Now, look at Peter's response. I know when you read it, you might just kind of glance over it. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. It's almost like, man, the three of us got a treat. They're at the base, because you know Peter's always saying something. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because he didn't know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. So Peter, Peter suggests building three tabernacles because he didn't know what to say. That's what he said, right? This is the same guy who testified that Jesus was Christ, the Son of the living God, and now he's saying something that's rather unintelligent. I mean, have you ever been in a moment of excitement that you said something really awkward? Ever happened to you before? You know, it's, it's like going through TSA, and the agent just smile and say, have a great vacation, and you're like, you too. And you're like, seriously? Well, that's Peter, offering to build something physical for these spiritual beings. He's nervous, but he's genuine in wanting to preserve this moment. He doesn't want this to end. This is a mountaintop experience. Then Mark 9, 7 to 8, a cloud came and overshadowed them, 
and the voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. I mean, think about that. Jesus in his glorified body saying the prophets of old. And all of a sudden, the voice of God himself is speaking. And then they looked around, they saw no one anymore but Jesus. You might glimpse God's goodness, but much of life occurs in the valley of reality. It's in that valley where there are demonic influences and sometimes unanswered prayers. And sometimes, like our story, we find helpless parents, tormented children, and in this case, even frustrated disciples. See, that's what they find when they left the mountaintop to the valley. Your relationship with Jesus is tested when faith and reality collide. If you're taking notes, your relationship with Jesus is tested when faith and reality collide. So that's what constantly you know, we, we face in our realities. Faith, reality. And depending on our relationship with Jesus that day, I don't know about you, but some days it's different. Some days it's real different. Depending on how you feel that day, the gravity of our reality may control our decision making. Some days you feel really excited about Jesus. And another day, the cares of this world comes upon us, and it doesn't feel like how it felt yesterday. What we're also seeing is the danger of living without Jesus. Without Jesus, our lives can be chaotic, troublesome, and hopeless. See, anyone can enjoy the mountaintop experience. It's comfortable. It's the difference you've been longing for. The problem is, that's not where we spend most of our time. Mark 9 and verse 9 says, Now as they came down from the mountain, when the cozy feeling is over, vacation is over, graduation is over, adulthood begins, this next season of your life, this is where scene two begins. Three disciples are having the time of their life on the mountaintop, but simultaneously, a father is in the valley experiencing a crisis. And worst of all, the other nine disciples, they can't even help. One group has the benefit of being with Jesus, and the other is living a life momentarily without him. Jesus comes down from the mountain and notices the other nine disciples. They're arguing with some of the scribes. The scribes were the religious leaders of the day. They were considered legal experts who would transcribe the Hebrew text. Mark 9, 16. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? See, Jesus immediately addresses the religious leaders. But notice who responds in the very next verse. Verse 17, then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son. This desperate father doesn't wait for someone to speak on his behalf. And he doesn't wait for an invitation to speak because the person he wants to see finally shows up. See, when you have a real crisis, silence is not an option. 
Some of you must learn in this season how to advocate for yourself. It might be uncomfortable, but it's necessary. But this verse also reveals that the father already has some doubts about who could help him. Because although these scribes were these spiritual and intellectual leaders, nothing about their lives convinced him that they had an answer. The father said, Jesus, I came to see you, but when you weren't here, I tried the next best thing, the other Christians. See, the father is a picture of our society. When people are in need, the last thing they want is an intellectual conversation or a spiritual response from the church. See, when the doctors can't find the answer or there's a desperate situation, people are not looking for another Bible study. Now, I know that sounds unchristian, but we just read it. Mark 9, 17 to 18. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. He's possessed. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. See, this father is seeking a miracle. Now imagine this desperate father. I heard that Emerge Berkeley is a place of refuge for those who are broken, so I came to get answers for my situation. But instead, I'm caught in a debate by all the intellectual folks. That's what our text says. See, I grew up in a culture where signs, miracles, healings were commonplace. It's normal. And some of you have never experienced you know, someone being pronounced dead and then returning to life after the church prayed. But I have. Some of you may never know what it's like to witness physical healing. No, but I have. I've shared before how was, we were having, planting a church, and we were outside. And we prayed for a miracle, and God's hand was like this. And before our eyes, his hands just came normal. Now, when I say commonplace, I'm not talking about just in Jamaica. I'm talking about wherever I've lived, I'm always seeing God doing the supernatural. So when you lack the experience in an area that someone needs, their need might become the subject of your debate. So there are some things our intellect cannot resolve. Our intellect does not define the power of God. It's a spiritual experience. Remember what Jesus said in Acts 1 and verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be, my wit be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So when someone shows up to get answers from the church, they want to know, is the power of God evident in your church? I know you have great programs, but can anyone hear from God and speak to my desperate situation right now? Here's how the world loses faith. And here's how you might lose faith. You came for answers, but found an intellectual debate. Do you know the vulnerability and difficulty of sharing a painful story repeatedly with no results? Constantly being asked, let me hear your story. 
No answers. And to make things worse, your crisis has become the main discussion. Everyone has something intellectual to say, but no real solution. You know, in the coming weeks, and Pastor Mima will share more about it, we've actually created a partnership with a counseling company because there are just some things that we can't offer as pastors. We can offer pastoral care, but we're not professional counselors. And since we're not professional counselors, then we let the professionals take care of it, right? So likewise, if you don't believe in healing or have never experienced the healing power of God, why are you having an intellectual conversation with someone who believes that God can heal them? This is the story of the Father. He came to see Jesus for healing and found himself in an intellectual debate. He had faith that Jesus could do something. Christ's initial response to hearing the boy's condition expresses his disappointment in a lack of faith. Verse 19, he answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Verses 22 to 23. The father's talking said, And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Notice the difference in response. Jesus offered a firm rebuke to the disciples and the scribes because they couldn't provide healing. He called them a faithless generation. But when the Father appealed to his compassion, he said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Look at the vulnerability of this desperate father in verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Faith and doubt metaphorically fight to occupy the same space. That's what we experience in our lives. Faith in one area. At the same time, doubt is trying to take over. Sometimes we feel strong, but sometimes doubt takes control and it weakens us. But Christ, he didn't shame the Father. He doesn't say, come back when you have more faith. Or come back when you learn what it's like to be a faithful Christian. Christ heals the boy with the imperfection of the Father's faith. See, most Christians can identify with this man. The acknowledgement of our inadequacy allows God to work in our lives. This is also true at the point of salvation. Salvation comes to inadequate sinners who realize their need for Jesus and ask for forgiveness. In the same way, Christians, we know what the Bible says and we trust God to take care of us. But sometimes we're faced with something that seems to overpower our faith. We don't seem to have enough faith to follow God, so we ask for more faith. We acknowledge that even our faith comes from God. His work in our lives enables us to obey him. When we doubt, we can ask God for more faith. When we are unwilling to obey, we can ask God, Lord, help me to obey you. 
As Christians, we know that our faith and obedience are always deficient. We can ask God to enable us to live the life that pleases Him. See, if left to our own strength, we'll never make it. So the Father says, I believe, help my unbelief. This is a statement and a confession that our faith is far from perfect. Our faith is far from perfect. But God understands the frailty of our humanity. All he needs from us is a little faith to give room for his power to work in us. Matthew 17 and verse 20 says, if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, then God can move in power. We can say to this mountain, get out the way. So Jesus uses imperfect faith for his glory. And now that this boy is healed, there's still a lesson for the disciples. Mark 9, 28 to 29. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. I'm going to give us three practical ways before we partake in communion. And the question we're asking is, how do we replace doubt in our lives? Of course, there are several things we can look at, but I want to offer you three things. The first thing is this. Fill your mind with the truth of God's word. In Romans 12, verse 2, it says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So to fill our mind with the truth of God's word. Notice in our story that the crowd was debating the situation. Now, we don't know how much faith this father had when he came, but it's possible he might have lost a little faith along the way. Because there was more noise than answers to his problems. Fortunately, this father was holding on to the little faith he had left. So we have to constantly take inventory for our lives. The people you are listening to, the crowd, the religious folks, the things that you say, the things that you're scrolling through or watching, take inventory. Is this thing life-giving or life-stealing? It's possible for us to just say, oh, it's just, it's just a TikTok video. It's just a little this. It's just a YouTube video. But how much of this thing that is just a this is taken from your spirituality? See, society tells us to control situations, but God says to trust him. Let God renew your mind and change your thoughts so you will know how to respond in any situation. When you find yourself in a desperate situation, remind yourself of the greatness of God and his faithfulness to us. The second thing is interrupt fear and negative thinking with a spoken word. You're like, what? This is the old school. You know, some, you know, some of you guys are still old school where you like having a book and pen in your hand, right? So you have to identify and write out your go-to verses. These verses that you're going to declare over your lives when, you, when you're overwhelmed with doubts. So if you feel anxious, 
You can say, ah, oh, Philippians 4, verses 6 to 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, oh, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You're writing it out. It's the difference between reading, but when you write that the peace of God is supposed to be over my life, then no longer am I anxious. And if you feel afraid, then 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So I don't need to be fearful if I know that I have these words as of my life. So if you know that you have weakness in those errors, you find the words of God and you write it out. So if you are in doubt, this one I need to read and the third point is, find things to be thankful for when your circumstance seems hopeless. Say, the father could have given up, because after all, Jesus wasn't there. But he stuck around long enough. And after waiting, he got the answer that he needs. It's easy for us to say, the thing that I want, I can't get. So let's move on with life. But even in the darkest situation, there's always that glimpse of hope. There's always something to be thankful for, even if it's the fact that you're alive. See, it's never too late to run to Jesus. All he wants is a little faith, just a little faith. 